Good morning, everybody. Turn with me, if you would, to chapter 16 as we are finishing up this book of 1 Corinthians that we've been in for quite a while now. Chapter 16. This morning, we're going to get a great opportunity to look at the Apostle Paul, who is a man on mission. He has been on mission and he is still on mission. And we're going to see that in a group of verses that when you first read it, you think it's just a few PSs at the end of a book, a few little notes that don't mean anything. So in light of that, 1 Corinthians 16, here's what I know for me, for me to do well spiritually, to think and to act and to see all of life through the gospel lens, I need those gospel lenses to be clear and clean. And here's why. If you're like me, circumstances can throw me for a loop. They can overwhelm me emotionally. My own sin can sort of eat at me and cause me to lose hope. The grind of life can easily make me apathetic toward the things that really, really matter. My own love of stuff and comfort can easily distract me from what matters. And just as I was thinking about it, my natural bent of living for the here and now versus what really matters or eternity. Because here's the deal for all of us. Our souls need so much more than money and food and grand experiences. Not that those things are wrong within themselves, but the key word there is so much more than those things. So some of the verses that I use frequently to clean my gospel lenses, to, to wipe smelling salts under my nose and make me wake up from my drunken stupor of the comfort of the hearing now are these following passages. Hopefully they will help you as well. Romans 8, if God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How can he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Answer, <laughs> nothing. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present to come, powers, heights, deaths, or anything else in creation will be able to separate us from the Lord, love of the Lord Jesus Christ. Philippians 2, for it is God who is at work in you. I need reminding that. What is he doing both to will and to work for his good pleasure? So he says, therefore, do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life so that our labor will not be in vain. I need reminding of Colossians 1, to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints of light. See how that wakes us up to what matters? Romans 8, 28 and 29, when circumstances overwhelm me, we go and we know 
that for those who love God, all things work together for good to those who are called according to his purpose so that they might be conformed to the very image of his beloved son. Smelling salts. John Piper puts it this way. The quote is at the top of your notes from his book, Don't Waste Your Life. I am wired by nature to love the same toys that the world loves. I start to fit in. I start to love what others love. I start to call earth home. Before you know it, I'm calling luxuries needs and using my money just the way unbelievers do. I begin to forget the war. I don't think much about people perishing. Missions and unreached people drop out of my mind. I stop dreaming about the triumphs of grace. My love for his church grows dim, he says. It is a terrible sickness. It is a terrible sickness. And he says, I thank God for those who have forced me again and again toward a wartime mindset. This morning, and just a few verses that would seem like, if we're not careful, just a few PSs at the end of a book. Paul, this is what he does. He forces you and I to grapple with a wartime mindset about God, about the gospel, about the church, about eternity, about relationships, about what really matters so that we at the end of our lives might say along with Paul what Paul wrote that we have fought the good fight, we have finished the race, we have kept the faith, and henceforth there is laid up for me and you a crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but to all who have loved his appearing. So let me read our text this morning and get going. So exciting. Paul writes, verse 5, I will visit you after passing through Macedonia, Macedonia, for I intend to pass through Macedonia, and perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter so that you may help me on my journey wherever I go. For I do not want to see you now just in passing. I hope to spend some time with you if the Lord permits, but I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost. For a wide door for effective work has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. When Timothy comes, see that you put him at ease among you, for he is doing the work of the Lord as I am. So let no one despise him. Help him on his way in peace, that he may return to me, for I am expecting him with the brothers. Verse 12, now concerning our brother Apollos, I strongly urged him to visit you, with the other brothers, but it was not at all his will to come now. He will come when he has the opportunity. So the first thing, I'm going to give you three sets, if you would, three sets of words that push us toward a wartime mindset as we look at the Apostle Paul's life. The first set is hungry and humble. Look at verses five and six. Paul says, I will visit you after passing through Macedonia, for I intend to pass through Macedonia, and perhaps I will stay with you, even spend the winter, so that you may help me on my journey wherever I go. Here we see that the Apostle Paul is missionally hungry. Now let me take you back a little bit to a timeline. This is fascinating stuff here. This is all in context. 
Paul converts to Christ in AD 33 at the age 27. Now, just as a reminder, I may be off a year or two, okay? But it's close. He spends the next three years in Arabia to work out what we know with the Lord, the implications of Jesus as Messiah and him being a light unto the Gentiles, what that would mean for him. Then he returns to Damascus where he was struck down on the road to Damascus. He returns there to preach Jesus, but soon afterwards he flees to Jerusalem because of the persecution. The persecution that he once was the leader of now had turned on him. And there he meets apostles for the first time. At age 30 to 38, he preaches in Tarsus and the surrounding region. From 38 to 40, he is with Barnabas, the son of encouragement, teaching in Antioch. And then he visits Jerusalem to bring them an offering for their famine that was taking place. At age 41, he goes on his first missionary journey to Cyprus and Galatia. At 43, he's at the Council of Jerusalem where he declared that Gentiles did not have to follow the Jewish law. And there he confronts Peter about that very issue. And from age 44 to 46, he starts his second missionary journey with Silas through Asia Minor and Greece and settles in Corinth where he, where he started this church that we've been reading about where he planted this church and spent 18 months pouring his life into them. And he writes also the book of Thess Thessalonians. From age 46 to 49, he starts his third missionary journey. And he is in Ephesus. And there he writes Galatia, Galatians and 1 Corinthians. That's where he's writing 1 Corinthians from. So these first 22 years of ministry, people have said Paul traveled 10,000 miles. With no planes, no trains, no helicopters, no subways, no cars, mostly on foot, with no Nikes. And by this point, he had endured many hardships, his first 22 years of ministry. Let's hear in his own words what he had suffered up to this point. 2 Corinthians 11. Five times I received, he says, at the hand of the Jews, 40 lashes, less one. The same 39 lashes that Jesus himself suffered, Paul received five times. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers. Danger from my own people, the Jews. Danger from Gentiles. Danger in the city. Danger in the wilderness. Danger at sea. Danger from false brothers. In toil and hardship through many sleepless nights. In hunger and thirst. Often without food. In cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there's the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. At age 49, and all this suffering, he still has the hungry fire of a man on mission. He is making plans to go to Macedonia. He's making plans to visit the Corinthians in person, to come back and circle back around, to continue to pour his life into a group of people who have honestly, have many times, have spit in his face relationally and spiritually. 
He's calling them unapologetically to help him on his journey. And that word help is a special word that Monty talked about finances last week. Special word that means money and food and supplies. He is not retiring. He is not. He is refiring. He has no plans to sit on a cottage by the Mediterranean Sea, sipping coconut juice and having his nails done. He's still like a general on the battlefront headquarters, pouring over the maps of where to go and where to send troops to attack the enemy. There is no mentality that says us for and no more. There's no holy huddles that live in their comfort zone and never go outward with the mission. His marching orders are grow and go, fish and feed. He is a man on mission and he's absolutely living out his own words that he wrote in Ephesians 5. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. He is planning for future ministry. He is hungry. And you and I need to know that it was 10 years later that his head was chopped off in Rome because he would not deny that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. He is still hungry. I ask a simple question. Are you hungry? He's also humble. He's humble in ministry and he's humble relationally. Even as the great apostle Paul. Even as the great apostle Paul, there's one thing that Paul communicates in this text and certainly in others. He knows it is not about him. He has experienced the crazy Make no sense, grace of God to him. He was a terrorist toward the Christian church. He was terrorizing it. And God allowed him to experience the sweet, beautiful, scandalous, and generous grace. This past Wednesday, some of you probably saw, I... I get the privilege of being born on July 4th so everybody can remember my birthday, right? And as I've said before, uh, to about 10 years of age, I thought the whole country was celebrating my birthday. It's, a, it's, a, it's, it's certainly a way to create a narcissist, right? So it, it was disappointing at, at best to find out that uh, I was actually just happened to be born on America's birthday. So uh, I was running this past Wednesday 55 years old. The heat was, was about 10.30 in the morning. I jogged by Monty. He was in the front yard cutting bushes. And I was, I looked like Tim Conway. I was going so slow. <laughs> and and, and um, I, I was sweating profusely. And I was saying, Lord, uh, don't, don't let me die on the road today. Um, uh, you know, at least let me get home. It was... It was I ran 55 minutes because I want to be 55, run 55 on the age of 55, but it was a powerful, powerful 55 minutes spiritually for me. 
I was running slow because it was so hot, but I was able to think about God's grace to me. Where in the world would my life look like? With no purpose, I, I would have created such a mess oh, for my wife, for my family. If not, I had not experienced the grace of God to me. <clears throat> I often think about legalism. Legalism makes us look good on the outside, but uh, legalism has no adoration attached to it. God's grace is what makes us adore him. And it was that that drove Paul to still be hungry. But look, even as a man who is leading, he's still being led. Look what he says in verse 7. I hope to spend time with you if the Lord permits He's not entitled. He's not demanding of the Lord. He's not demanding of others. He has surrendered to the Lord, open hands. My life at the end of the day is not my life. I have been bought with a price more precious than silver and gold, the precious blood of Christ. I've marched to that drumbeat. And he says in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me in the life I now live in the flesh. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Paul is humble because he, he is not a glory thief. Psalms 25.9 says that God leads the humble in what is right. And he leads the humble in what is right because the humble are the ones who listen and obey. They still want to learn and grow. And then Paul, I think, is humble relationally. The people in Corinth, as we have seen earlier, they had a very bad attitude toward Paul, a lot of them. And they considered Apollos, if you go back in the early parts of the chapter, remember, they thought Apollos was the man, was their man. And it would be easy for Paul, humanly speaking, to be jealous and spiteful of Apollos since he was the, you know, Paul's like, I'm the one who founded the church. I'm the one that gave 18 months of my life to you. And y'all talking about Apollos. So I'm going to keep Apollos away. He's not coming close. He's not going to steal my glory. No, here's what Paul does in verse 12. Paul actually goes to Apollos and urges him to come to the church and minister to the Corinthians. That's amazing. If you know the human heart. The Corinthian church was stuck on personalities. They had arguments about who was the man. Apollos or Paul. They had this celebrity mindset. They were childish. They were immature. Paul actually writes earlier. Who cares? Who cares? I plant Apollos waters, God causes the growth. Paul's saying that's all that really matters is that they are growing spiritually. It's amazing what can get done when nobody cares who gets the credit. And then looks how he deals with Timothy. Timothy. <laughs> A rising lieutenant of Paul's. And Paul knew, he, and we know, and Paul knew he was timid. Scriptures say he was physically frail. He was young and Paul knew the folks in Corinth could be overwhelming to him. 
bullheaded and intimidating. They had terrorized the great apostle Paul. How would they treat this Timothy and take advantage of his temperament that was so opposite of the apostle Paul? And so here's what Paul says. He takes time to say to them, verse 10 and 11, put him at ease, do not despise him, help him, which means give him money and supplies and all that he needs so he can go in peace to return to me. Why? Paul gives the reason in those verses. Because he is doing the work of the Lord Jesus Christ just as I am. Paul is saying, look, Timothy and I are as different as night and day. We're different personalities. We're different temperaments. We're different skill set. We're different gifting. We're different backgrounds. But honor this man because of his work for Christ. Paul was humble enough to know that everyone did not have to be like him for Jesus to use them. He knew the question is not, are they your favorite, but are they faithful? Treat this man well because he is faithful to Christ. Great humility. Hungry and humble. The second set of words is international and independent. And I'm going to, I'm going to, I confess I'm going outside of my text this morning to grab some of this, but I think it makes sense without going too far back to Monty's passage or going too far forward and stealing from Monty's passage next week. But international independent, th this really is fascinating. Think about this. Only 20 years before this was written, the church was a very small group of Jews in a dusty province on the edge of the Roman Empire. It was empire. It was really a nationalistic sect, and now it has grown into and developed to be a full-fledged international body. In this last chapter, there are at least five provinces of the Roman Empire mentioned: Galatia, verse one; Judea, verse three. Macedonia, verse 5, Achaia, verse 15, and Asia, in verse 19. They're all in the Roman Empire. They're all provinces in this, in this Roman Empire, but they have enormous differences of race, culture, civilization, history, traditions. They were Greek and Roman, barbarian, Jew and Gentile, and yet in every one of these places, their church is present and active influencing society so that a generation, less than a generation ago, this small Jewish group of people had turned into an international body influencing the world. Now, if you know a little bit of history here, this is, this is pretty cool. This was a great period of growth for the church. The Romans had brought peace to the world through power, obviously, but they, one of the things they have done is swept the pirates out of the Mediterranean Sea. They built great roads which allowed people to travel uh, cheap and easy and quickly throughout all the known world. Scholars actually tell us that traveling was faster and safer and easier in the first century than it was for the next 1,700 years. You could move where you liked, and you could understand each other because everyone spoke one language, which was Greek. So here's the deal. God led Paul to take advantage of this circumstance in order to expand the kingdom. And much of what we see happening here is because Paul 
God assigned the task and Paul obeyed. The task he was given, Paul was a man on mission. So when we see all these international countries, we see that Paul was a man on mission. He had been for all his life. So international and then interdependent. Interdependent, I think, with finances. As Monty taught last week, Paul is urging the Gentiles to collect money to send to the Jews in Jerusalem who are experiencing persecution. So he wants them to give that money. Now, they don't know them. They don't know the Jews in Jerusalem. They never will. But he wants them to give them money. The Christians in Jerusalem have experienced that persecution and that famine. Paul is committed to help them partly because Paul was once a persecutor of them, but also because this is how Christians live on mission when it comes to their finances. This is what Christians do. Now, the context of this, I think, is important. We need to remember the Jews were suspicious of Christian Gentiles because they didn't keep the law of Moses. So they had a degree of caution and wariness toward them. So imagine, if you would, the power of Paul delivering this money to the Jerusalem Christians and saying, this is from your brothers and sisters in Corinth and Ephesus and Rome. They love you, they care for you, they are with you, they are praying for you, and this is tangible proof. Here's money they've sent to relieve you of some of the pain and suffering that you're going through. This immediately would bind this international church together, and it would say, to all the Christians worldwide, we are separate bodies in separate places in separate times. But at the end of the day, the big C church of true Christ followers, we are interdependent. We need each other. And therefore, we respond to each other as Paul had the Corinthian believers do here. It's ultimately about the mission. So, international and inter dependent. Lastly, and I think my favorite part, opportunities in opposition. Read verses eight and nine. Paul says, I will stay in Ephesus. That's where he's writing the letter from until Pentecost for a wide door of effective work has opened to me and, and there are many adversaries. Now, Paul writing, is writing 1 Corinthians from the city of Ephesus, and he says he'll stay there for the time being, and he gives two reasons, opportunities and opposition. Now, context here, Paul has spent two and a half years in Ephesus, or will, it, is, it was his longest known ministry uh, place or period of ministry, and it was a very fruitful season of gospel progress. You can read all about it in Acts 19, one of my favorite chapters in all the Bible. There's a lot going on there. Acts 19.10, Paul says, great gospel progress. All of Asia, he says, had heard the word of the Lord. From this mother churches in Ephesus, from this mother church in Ephesus, churches were planted in Colossae and Laodicea and other places. Verse 20 says, The word of God spread widely and grew in power till the whole city was influenced. 
Acts 19 tells us there was this occult, the occult empire came tumbling down because the palm readers in town came to Christ. So you know what they did? They took all their little occult books and they took them outside the city and they piled them up and they burned them. And in one big fire, poof, 50,000 pieces of silver. That's what those books were worth were gone. Paul says there was also, we know, in Ephesus, intense opposition. They were opposed by exorcists. They tried to distort and discredit his work. Paul was opposed by the merchants and tradesmen of the city who were losing money because the gospel had exposed and debilitated Ephesus' elaborate system of idolatry with the sex god Diana. As Paul, it says, daily for two and a half years, went to the temple teaching the word of God. See, people could no longer have sex with when they wanted, with who they wanted, wherever they wanted. The gospel had infiltrated and dried up the clientele. And he says the Jews tried to kill him. Also, the silversmiths in town, they were making a financial killing, making little silver statues of the goddess Artemis. And Paul comes in and says to the people, gods that are made with human hands aren't gods. (laughs) Like, no kidding, Sherlock. He says, Jesus is the only true God, and he is calling you to repent or be judged. You start taking a man's money, and you're going to see violence. And that's what they saw. These men started a riot, and they might have killed Paul if his friends had not protected him. It's an amazing passage to read. 1 Corinthians 15, 32, Paul says that he fought wild beasts in Ephesus. Many scholars believe that he actually didn't fight wild animals, but that the people there were so mean and so crazy and so cruel and so evil that it felt like he was fighting wild animals. 2 Corinthians 1, 8, Paul opens his inner heart. He opens his chest for us and he describes how he felt doing ministry in Ephesus. He says, we're in a great pressure here, far beyond. I have never felt this. Look what he says. I have far beyond our ability to endure so that we despaired for our lives. Do you feel that tension? Paul is saying this job is killing us. And here's what's crazy here. In his sane mind, he says, he quotes both opportunities and opposition as reasons for staying longer in Ephesus. I don't know about you, but the second reason seems like a great reason to leave. Paul's saying there's a battle to be fought. And we must remember that opposition doesn't necessarily mean we are outside of the will of God, but that we're actually right in the center of it. Let's make sure 
When there's opposition, there is opposition because the gospel has been offensive, not us. These two words, opportunity and opposition, describe the whole life of the Apostle Paul. He ran toward the fire, not away from it. He was a man on mission. So for us this morning, hungry and humble, international and interdependent, opportunities and opposition, we've got to ask ourselves the question, are we a man or woman on mission? Do I, want, do I know that you feel fearful? Yes. Do I know that you're afraid what people would think of you? Yes. Do I know you make excuses at times to say my personality is not like Jeff so I can't share the gospel? Yes. Do I empathize with all that? Absolutely, because I have felt it all. But sometimes, from time to time, we need a sermon like this that wakes us up, that shakes us, that rattles our souls, that grabs us around the chest and says, this is what really matters. And it's all motivated by the great grace of God that makes us adore him, that makes us do things that are outside our comfort zone because he's been so kind to us. We need smelling salts to wake us up. C.S. Lewis put it this way. Aim at heaven and you'll get earth thrown in. Aim at earth and you'll get neither. Are you a man or woman on mission? Take a minute to ask that hard question. To reevaluate, to wake yourself up with what really matters.